In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetations, seed-bearing plants on the land that bear fruit with seeds in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the sky. And so God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing with which the water teems, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, 
and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. There will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all of the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground. Everything that has breath of life in it I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. Uh, Father in heaven, we do want to thank you for uh, the, uh, the way that you reveal yourself to us through uh, the creation and also through your word. And we pray now that as we dive into your word, both here and next door uh, in the Sunday school, that you would be uh, refreshing us in uh, the uh, great truths that we read, that you would be uh, teaching us new truths. And Father, most of all, that we would be responding with with faith and with uh, thanksgiving. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you step outside of our uh, Western culture, uh, you'll soon learn that not all cultures uh, think the same about the spiritual world and about questions like of ultimate reality, such as how the universe began. One of the oldest continuing spiritual beliefs about creation uh, is something which we don't have to travel too far to find because it's found right here in Australia. Because over thousands of years, as Indigenous Australians have, have tried to uh, make sense of the world, have tried to explain the world and uh, the situations of life that they find themselves in, they've developed stories about the rainbow serpent. So that um, <clears throat> the, uh, the, this, the rainbow serpent is this giant reptile who came from beneath the ground and has, in emerging from the ground, has created the, the, the mountains, the, uh, the ridges, the valleys, the gorges and so on as it's pushed upwards. And uh, this serpent inhabits deep water holes <clears throat> and controls uh, what <clears throat> surely is one of life's most precious resources, and that, of course, is water. So it's the, uh, it's the serpent who causes the, uh, the water to fall from the sky. It's the serpent who causes the water to stop falling from the sky, and therefore it's the serpent who can create droughts. And when the, uh, the thunder roars or when the lightning strikes, it's because the serpent is angry. Uh, some indigenous cultures <clears throat> go a step further and they worship the 
rainbow serpent as being the creator of the entire universe. Now, <clears throat> that is a very different view of the world, isn't it, uh, to the view of the world which you and I would have. In actual fact, in some respects, it's much closer to the, to the cultures of the world into which the book of Genesis was written. Uh, cultures where people worshipped all sorts of different gods, uh, gods who they believed had created everything, gods who they believed who controlled the world in which humans live. Take, for example, the ancient Babylonians. Uh, they believed in many gods, uh, and they believed, amongst many other things, uh, which is, it makes for an interesting read, they believed uh, that, a, that a great battle, uh, which was driven by uh, jealousy and the desire for power, had occurred in the heavenlies. A, a battle whereby the, the god Marduk challenged the uh, goddess the pregnant god, goddess Tiamat uh, to a fight and uh, Marduk uh, won the fight. He defeated Tiamat. He, uh, he killed Tiamat and he ripped open her corpse uh, into two halves from which he made the, the earth and, and the heavens. Uh, Marduk then created the calendar. He organised the planets. He organised the stars. He regulated the moon and the sun and the weather. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, the Garden of Eden is set in what land? It's set in Babylonia, uh, where the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers meet. But you see, Genesis paints a very different picture of creation and of ultimate reality than that. Uh, these days... I think these days when people talk about Genesis that the discussion often revolves around questions of science and uh, the mechanics of creation. But the author of Genesis doesn't actually address those questions. Uh, and the, the difficulty when we, we do that, of course, is that we can sometimes not pay proper regard to the science and also not pay proper regard to the book of Genesis because uh, Genesis is actually dealing with a different set of questions, the questions, the issues that were prevalent and important in the day that it was written. It was a world of competing gods where people lived in fear about which god they should worship uh, because if they worship the wrong god, if they worship the lesser god, the weaker god, then somehow maybe their crops may fail and they may go hungry. And so what Genesis does is that Genesis clears away a lot of the false thinking and addresses the key issues of the time. Who is God? How is he different from all the other so-called gods? What is his relationship to the world? And most importantly, what is his relationship to me? How do I fit into this world and into the, the whole schema of what has been created? Now, we can't say with absolute certainty who wrote Genesis. And the reason I say that is because the book actually doesn't tell us. Uh, nowhere in Genesis does it say 
who the author was. Uh, both uh, Jewish and Christian tradition have long held that the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. So the, uh, the first five books being Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, sometimes referred to as the Law or the Torah or the Pentateuch. And so it's been held that those five books that were written by Moses, but yet one of those books, the book of Deuteronomy, actually records the death of Moses. So, you know, quite clearly, uh, at the very least, you'd have to say that there's somebody else involved in writing the first five books of the Bible. And yet what we do know for sure is that these books include the words and include the teaching of Moses, uh, for that uh, Jesus refers to. And it may well be the case that he's written Genesis, it's just that we can't say for sure because Genesis doesn't tell us who wrote Genesis. Yet as we turn to the very first books, um, very first words of Genesis, we turn to the very first words of the Bible and uh, I want to do that now because what we see here is that in these very first words, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that the author does not, does not feel any need uh, to attempt to prove the existence of God. Uh, he simply states the existence of God and uh, tells us that, that God is pre-existent in the sense that God is, has existed prior to the heavens and prior to the earth. But what does he teach us about God, about the character of God, and what does he teach us about the creation in which we live and are, are a part of? Well, throughout chapter 1, the author of Genesis paints a picture for us. And the first thing we see is that he divides creation up into what he calls days, seven days in all, uh, six days of uh, creating and one day of rest. And what we see here is that, uh, that uh, with each of the first six days, he tells us something about God's uh, creating. Uh, there are two sets of three days. There are two sets of three days and uh, each of those sets, each of the days in the two sets of three days relate to a corresponding day in the other set. You might find that diagram that's in your notes helpful at this point. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, first of all, let's have a look at day one, which we see in verses three through to five. Uh, it says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So what was created on the first day? Light. Uh, light which separated, uh, which was separate from darkness. What about day two? Uh, in verses six to eight. Uh, and God said... Uh, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was, it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. 
So there, there is that uh, sense in which God has created the sky. He's separated the water which covered the earth from the water above, which we'd seen the cloud system and so on, and he's created the sky. And then on day three, God gathered the waters of the earth together so that land emerged from under the water and as land emerged, uh, God created the vegetation. So plants, trees, fruit. In other words, food. Now, in this picture which is being painted, the, the first three days are like an outline. Uh, there's, there's light and dark. There's uh, sky and water. There's land and vegetation. He, he's painted a picture, he's given us the outline of the picture because in the, in the second set of three days, what he does is he fills out that picture uh, in a way whereby each of the days four, five and six connect with days, in, uh, days one, two and three and do so in a parallel form. Let me show you what I mean by that. Uh, in day four, which is in verses 14 through to 19, God created the sun and moon which fills the heavens and creates the light which he made in, verse, in, in day one. You see that? Uh, in day five, which is verses 20 through to 23, what did God create? What did God create in day five? He created the, tell us, friends, the fish and the birds in order to fill the water and the sky which he created on day day two. On day two. And then in day six, which is from verses 24 to 31, God created animals and ultimately humans to fill the land that he created on day three and to be nourished by the vegetation that he has created on day three. So we see that, uh, that the pattern that, that has emerged, that you've got two sets of three days, days one, two and three, four, five and six, where day one connects with day four, day two connects with day five, day three connects with day six. It's, there's a pattern in the way that this is written. But there's another pattern in this picture as well. Because in each of the days, we see certain phrases repeated. Um, for example, take the phrase, and God said. Uh, we first see it in verse 3, if you have a look at the text, in verse 3, and God said. But then it's repeated in verse 6, and God said. <clears throat> then in verse 9, and God said. Then in verse 14, and God said. Then in verse 20, and God said. Then in verse 24, and God said. And that amounts to every one of the six days. So there's this, uh, this, this, this pattern uh, which we see there. And the basic pattern on each day goes like this. It says, And God said, Let there be, and it was so, and there was evening and morning. It's repeated in every one of the six days. There are other phrases which are sometimes repeated in some days, but not in all of the days, but uh, phrases like, and God saw that it was good. Right? Now, why is this important? 
Well, I think it's important because it suggests to us that what is written is not intended to be a step-by-step description of the scientific question. Uh, You know, our our 21st century question is the question of, of how God created, is it not? That's the question. Uh, but, but you see, I don't think it's, it's not addressing that question at all. And when we come at Genesis with that question, we end up misunderstanding Genesis. And uh, also we can sometimes not pay due, due respect to the science which we're sometimes using Genesis in order to try to um, uh, defend against. Um, and, and I mean, the, the evening slash morning pattern uh, is in place even before the sun and the moon and the stars are created. You see the point? Uh, The ancient readers were not absorbed with the how question. The issue for them was the who question. Which God should I worship? What is he or she or it like? And so the the starting point in verse 2, if you go back to verse 2, our starting point, is a picture of an earth which, which has no form. It's, it's empty, it's dark, it's watery. And in biblical thinking, uh, water or the, the sea or the ocean is symbolic of chaos. But as this picture, uh, as this story unfolds, it, it paints a picture of chaos and emptiness Uh, being changed and filled with a creation which is not chaotic, it's orderly, which is not empty, it's actually uh, beautiful and and it's very, very good. Now, these days people even in Western society claim to believe in astrology well, I think that a lot of people just read the newspapers and <clears throat> think, you know, what am I? Am I a Virgo or Libra or, you know, Sagittarius or Taurus? And, you know, look it up and, and uh, you know, think that it might have some sort of meaning to them uh, but not actually being totally committed to it. But it's this idea that the stars in the sky are somehow in charge of your personality uh, and your future. Now, in this sense, we can see that the message here in Genesis is a timeless message because in the ancient world with its stories of many gods and of cosmic battles, Genesis chapter 1 speaks into that world, into that culture, into that thinking and speaks profound truths, unique truths, unique because they are true, unique because they are truths which actually make sense of the world and of our lives. For what does it say? Well, it says there is only one God. There was no cosmic battle. God didn't have to fight with other gods in order to assert his rule. The sun and the moon and the stars, they're not somehow his rivals. They don't control creation. They are his creation. And it tells us that God is not part of the creation. It's not as if there was this cosmic battle and one God got split into two and formed the, the heavens and the earth. And, and you see people even today in some cultures uh, in, with what's 
called pantheism, where people, and it's in New Age movement, where people will say, well, you know, God exists everywhere, that God is in the rock, that God is in the plant, that God is in the hill, that God is in the tree. But no, what Genesis tells us is that's not true. That God is separate from his creation. Which, by the way, means that the laws of nature don't necessarily apply to God. Because these are laws that he has created and he's created them for the, the, the good of, of the created order. Uh, Genesis tells us that God had no beginning. Um, that's, that's against the laws of nature, isn't it? God had no beginning, he simply is. And it tells us that he is powerful to achieve what he has decided. Uh, we see in this account that God is wise. We see that it's not a chaotic account, it's not an accidental account, but rather that, that uh, God is orderly and he's purposeful which means that the universe is no accident. You and I are no accident. You and I are purposeful. You and I have meaning. In fact, you and I hold a very special place in God's creation. I think that we all know that we're not like all the other animals, don't we? I mean, we may share 97% of our DNA with chimpanzees, but we ain't chimpanzees. <laughs> we ain't like any other of the, creation, of, the, of the creatures. We may have a similar features. We may even have a similar build. But our ability to think, our ability to design, our ability to build, to create... Our concern for things which are not tangible, our concern for justice and, and ethics, our appreciation of, of music and art and literature and, and, and beauty and so on, are just so far above any other creature. Our desire to do what we're doing right now, our desire to understand our origins, our desire to contemplate divinity and life beyond the grave tell us that we are in a substantially different category to every other creature. And in that sense, our experience is explained by the text. Have a look at what Genesis tells us in verse 26 and 27. In verse 26, the author says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. I guess one of the things that leaps out of that page and kind of hits you across the face is that uh, three times it says that we made in his image. What does, it make, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, another thing that, that, another thing that can kind of whack you across the face there is that 
the text, God said, let us make man in our own image. Did you see that? Let us in our own image. You see, God is relational. Uh, we know from the rest of scripture that God is not uh, one person, that God is one God, but three persons. God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. Uh, we know from uh, the book of Colossians, that uh, Jesus uh, is the one in whom and through whom all things have been made. And so we get a hint here of the relational being of God, of the Trinity, and we're told that he has made us in his image, uh, which uh, means that we too are relational beings, that we, uh, we, we relate to one another, we need one another, we're built for one another, and we're built for relationship with God, with our Creator. There's a second aspect to this idea of being in God's image. And that is, it's got to do with authority, the authority to rule over the, uh, of the creatures uh, that uh, God has created. So in verse 26, let, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all of the creatures that move along the ground. The idea of ruling is inbuilt into the idea of being made in the image of God. See, uh, in our world, if a nation wants to claim authority over a land, uh, what do they go and plant in that land? They plant a, a flag. Right? So in... Captain Cook arrived at Botany Bay in 1770, went and got a Union Jack and he slammed it into the ground and he says, I'm claim, you know, he said, King George III now rules here and I'm his representative. Americans did better, one better than that. They went and planted a stars and stripes on the moon. Right? But you, you plant a flag to say who rules and, uh, and, and that the person planting the flag is the representative of the one who rules. In the ancient world, they didn't have flags. They didn't do that. What would happen in the ancient world was that a king would erect a giant statue, an image of himself. You saw that Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel used to do that, didn't he? A giant statue, a giant image of the king in order to make that very same statement about who rules here. Friends, we are, God's, we are made in God's image. We are God's image. We are created as his representatives to rule over the good world that he has created and to do so his way, to rule over God's world as we ourselves submit to the rule of God. We are his ambassadors. We are his image. We are to rule his way under his authority. Now, when we get to chapter 3, we're going to kind of work out, we're going to see why it is that we don't do that particularly well, but more of that in a couple of weeks. But I want to suggest that in one sense, our lives are vastly different to the lives of ancient people. Um, in our Christianised culture, we're not likely to be people who worship the sun or the moon or the stars unless we believe in astrology or, you know, read tea, ba tea, not tea bags, read tea leaves. 
Well, you might as well read the tea bags because it'll do you about as much good, right? But we're not likely to be people who do that. We don't live our lives trying to please the rainbow serpent or live in fear that we might be bowing down to the wrong statue of the wrong God, that we might have picked the weaker God and not the stronger God and that we might somehow displease that God and we might lose our crops and go hungry as a result of that. We don't live in that kind of fear and that fear that we might have made the wrong choice amongst the plethora of gods that we're on offer. No, no, we're not like that. We're sophisticated. We're not primitive like that. We've got far more sophisticated gods, don't we? The gods which our culture tends to worship are not spiritual gods but material gods. Gods which people hope will add meaning to life. Gods which people hope will help them to find their place in this world. And so our lives can become shaped by the possessions that we own, the money that we possess, the reputation that we enjoy, the activities we do or the relationships that we put in God's place in our lives. And we shortchange ourselves, don't we? We shortchange ourselves because we do what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. We end up worshipping the creation rather than the creator. Right? You see, uh, when we do that though, we miss the very purpose for which we exist. And that's why it's always so unfulfilling in the end. On day, day seven, what did God do? Day seven, God rested. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, God has stopped working forever. Uh, he stopped his creative work in terms of what's been described for us. What it does tell us is that there is something more to life than just work. You see, God is not like the, um, the watchmaker. You know, he, he's not like the watchmaker who has built the mechanical, you know, the mechanism and then he's wound it up and then he's just let it go. He's not the God who's uh, set the creation in place, established the laws of uh, nature and of physics and has then just withdrawn and let it kind of tick over. He's not like that. He's a God who keeps on working. Uh, he continues to work in our world in, in every way. He continues to, to sustain our world, to provide in our world and to rule in our world. He is sovereign. He is in control of our world. And of course his great work is seen in his redemptive work that we see in the person and the death and the resurrection of Jesus who has died and risen for us. More of that in future weeks. But friends, what I want to finish by saying is this, that God invites you and me to, in, to join him in his rest, to join him by loving him, trusting him, and honouring him as God of our lives. Because when we do that, we actually 
do we actually live for the very purpose for which we've been made? And uh, I want to leave you with this question. And it is this, can there be any greater reality? Can there be anything more satisfying and more fulfilling than to live your life for the very purpose for which you've been intended? Not for some false purpose, but for the true and actual purpose. Can there be anything more satisfying, anything more enriching, anything more fulfilling than to, 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 to live for the God who, who alone has created the universe, who has made you special within that universe, and to not only know him, but to enjoy him and his goodness forever. That's the rest that we can enter into by putting God in his rightful place and ultimately uh, by trusting in Jesus as the one who's made that possible for a fallen humanity that we'll talk about when we get to Genesis chapter 3. But let us pray pray as we uh, bring these matters before God. Gracious God, uh, we are overawed when we consider your majesty and your greatness. Uh, For you are the one who has created all things out of nothing. You are the one who's turned chaos and emptiness uh, into order and beauty. Father, we thank you that uh, we are so special, that you have made us in your image to relate to you and to be your representatives, to rule over this world. Father, we acknowledge that we don't do that as we ought, that we have sinned and rebelled against you. And we thank you for the forgiveness that you've won for us through Jesus. We pray for each one of us that we would hold you in the right position in our lives, that we would not seek to find our identity, our fulfilment, our purpose, our place in the world by treasuring other gods apart from you. Oh, Father, we we pray for that and we thank you that in putting you in the right position that we can indeed enjoy the very purpose for which we've been created, to love you, to serve you, to honour you, to worship you forever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.